This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. That, of course, is the, the famous John Williams TV theme song to Lost in Space, one of our favorites in this show, I might say. We are planning to get a little bit lost in space at the beginning of um, this first segment. Uh, before we do that, I want to note that in segment two today, we're going to speak with author Vince Palomara about the Secret Service. His book is titled Who's Who in the Secret Service, subtitled History's Most Renowned Agents. And um, we're going to go back to the history of presidential protection and come forward in time because there's a lot that can be said about this most curious topic. Let's go back out into deep space, as it were, and talk about the kerfuffle surrounding the, is it an asteroid? Is it a comet? What exactly is it? It's been titled Waumuamua, O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. It's a Hawaiian name based on the fact that the observatory in Hawaii tracked this thing. It um, was discovered last year to be moving so quickly that it was not going to be captured and remain within our solar system. Something moves that fast, it just keeps a-going. And Waumuamua is indeed moving that fast. It's long been speculated that uh, our solar system may be visited from uh, something in deep space. Why not? We mentioned this program a couple weeks back that a couple of Harvard alleged astrophysicists are saying that, hey, this thing is exhibiting some strange behavior. As reported on Radio Parallax and elsewhere, uh, careful measurements of the motions of this object showed that it accelerated as it came past the sun. It wasn't simply coasting as gravity would indicate it would. It sped up. This led people to note that, well, perhaps this wasn't an asteroid at all, but in fact a comet. Comets, after all, do outgas. And when they do so, like, like letting go of a balloon, that creates a propulsion force which does change its trajectory just a little bit. So, we know that this object sped up. There's a wonderful uh, video that you can find on the web of Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this theory that it's perhaps aliens, an alien spacecraft, an alien visitor that explains why it was propulsing its way out of the solar system at a greater speed. You know, the grass Tyson proposed that well, they got a good look at life here on Earth and said, let's just keep going. But anyway, the bright boys at Harvard are suggesting that, well, maybe it's propulsion or maybe, maybe it's not uh, an asteroid at all. It's a light sail. NASA and others, of course, have been uh, looking at the idea of putting a great sail up in space and then basically letting the solar wind, as it were, propel it outside of uh, the solar system. The Planetary Society has been trying to get a couple of these objects up, and there was a failure last year, but it certainly will work from the standpoint of pure physics. We just have to get up there and unfurl one. Anyway, the punchline to all of this is that, well, yes, an alien spacecraft is one possible explanation for why this thing sped up. It's probably not the simplest explanation, and generally in science, per Occam's razor, uh, it's noted that the simplest explanation tends to be the most correct one, the one that requires the least number of inferences. 
But then, hey, you guys all knew that. And speaking of objects hurling through space, and how's that for a segue? Sacramento transplant Graham Arthur McKenzie, who's recently relocated here from Seattle, is intent upon shooting his intact dead body into space. He reached out to us a few months back, and I have to say, we've never been, we've never received a solicitation quite like that one, and that, that led us to think that we need to bring him on the show. And therefore, it is my great pleasure to say at this point in time, welcome to Radio Parallax, Graham Arthur McKenzie. Thank you so much, Douglas. Graham, I've never heard anybody suggesting that they should be sent out into deep space in quite the way you are. This is really outside-the-box thinking. Well, thanks. I certainly have not uh, heard of anybody else having this idea or one similar to it yet, but a passion of mine, so I'm, I'm happy to talk with you about it. So you figure that after you pass, after you leave this mortal coil, you will have a, a body that's left here on Earth, and rather than bury it or cremate it, you'd like to be sent out of the solar system. Yeah, if possible, and it is technically possible, so I guess the rest is just logistics for me to, to go about setting up before, before that time comes. Something that I, I, I think I just had been meditating on for, for some time, and, and it wasn't until uh, a couple of months ago this year that I realized that I know somebody who actually could answer the questions that I had surrounding this, at least the technical questions, and I was able to actually start thinking about it in a concrete fashion. So. All right, and by way of background, you yourself are an artist, and a, uh, you're studying some computer science, and you're a professional sign language interpreter. Yes. That's, that's, my, that's my most uh, stripped-down bio. Mm -hmm. Well, we should also refer listeners to our good friends over at the Sacramento News and Review. They caught up with you recently, Graham, and wrote a little, uh, one of the local stories in 15 minutes about what you have to say. That can supplement today's talk for our listeners. Yeah, I've, I've, I've since come to discover that uh, the, being in the 15-minute section of uh, the News and Review is something of a club that, that one can belong to locally. I, I happen to know a lot of... Uh, friends and, and other people locally who have been in that section of the paper, so I'm, I'm happy to join their ranks. Well, good deal. We, we've, we've had quite a close relationship with the News and Review over the years. We think they're a great organization, and uh, we, 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 we take our hat off to them. Graham, I want to ask you whether you saw the Star Trek original movie back in the 80s when, they, when the, when the uh, Starship Enterprise gets involved with this alien life form that's, that's curious about V'ger, which turns out to be one of the Voyager spacecraft, which would disappear in the, uh, outside of our solar system. Did that inspire some of this thinking on your part? You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that, actually, because the V'ger reference is, is kind of a touchstone for this with my brother. Um, Every time I discuss this project with him, he can't help but 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 go V'ger in that voice that was in the movie. But I, I don't remember if it actually uh, impacted my thinking on it. But but perhaps you know it's it's probably milling about there somewhere in, in the in the subconscious. First of all, we should clarify: you plan to be thoroughly dead before you make this space voyage. Uh, you're not going to like go out alive and then expire along the way. So I think that uh, as macabre uh, and as uh, apparently off-putting as this idea is generally to everybody except for my um, <laughs> most uh, twisted friends and family, yeah, it, it seems like shooting my corpse out of the solar system is somehow slightly more palatable than the idea of me taking that voyage you know, near the end of my life and, and, and turning it into an actual suicide mission. I think, I think that that, believe it or not, is, is the thing that is a step too far is beyond the pale in regards to this. So I'm pretty sure it's going to have to be my corpse. But the one downside to, to all of that is that uh, if we can assume, uh, take seriously the idea that I actually succeed here, um, I will lack the ability to 
totally verify that this plan has gone through, you know, and obviously, <laughs> even if with all the best contracts and lawyers and, and everything set up uh, ahead of time with the proper vendors, things can still go awry at the last minute. So, you know, I, I would I would hate to deny myself the ability to really shepherd this thing, um, another space fund intended, all the way to the end of the, of the process. But yeah, I'm afraid it's probably just going to have to be my corpse, and <laughs> not, not octogenarian me. Well, we should point out you are currently, I believe, 41 years of age. So this event presumably will not take place for many decades. Well, I don't know about many decades, but maybe, yeah, maybe a good, a good four more would be about right. Anything past that, and I, and I feel like I would be uh, asking for too much. But yeah, um, hopefully no, no less than two decades. That would be ideal. You may need some time for this, Graham, because there's currently a lot of trouble with getting things into space at all. The International Space Station is quite dependent right now upon Russian rockets getting them into orbit. And anything you want to put, first of all, into Earth orbit, you've got to have 1,000 pounds of fuel for a pound in orbit. That's step number one. Then they've got to shoot you out of the solar system. So this, this is going to involve quite a bit of rocket fuel. The whole reason why I'm able to take this seriously is uh, directly connected to the issues that you're talking about with the space station and, and having to depend on foreign technology and, and just more generally speaking, the, the uh, somewhat neglected state that NASA is in, you know, as this country has uh, in, in, in many ways abdicated uh, on a governmental level its lead in, in science and certainly space exploration. And so naturally, that's the void that these private companies have been filling, such as SpaceX and, and, and Blue Origin. And so it's strangely because of that uh, vacuum that they were able to fill and, and therefore have a nascent private, uh, privatized, or I should just, just say private space uh, industry that allows me to take my dream seriously. Because obviously, um, even if I could uh, get the right amount of attention or the right amount of funds, the U.S. government and... Um, uh, anything having to do with NASA wouldn't touch me with, you know, a 10-parsec length pull. And so private space industry is really my only option for this enterprise. Well, not to get too technical, but once they've got your, once they've got your, your mass up there uh, orbiting the Earth and they want to inject outwards, uh, I think you and I spoke briefly about this in prepping for this, this interview, that you may have to involve an ion engine, which is, which is, which is a very uh, fuel-efficient way to move something through space. It's true, yeah. Or and I think I was, actually you also mentioned uh, light sails, and and those two technologies are absolutely things that um, might I might have to take advantage of. They are, I think, if I'm not mistaken, very much. They're not. They're nowhere near the experimental stage, but they're basically or the light sail. I think maybe still is, but the ion engines are pretty pretty well tested at this point. Oh yeah. But whether or not that is going to be a viable option, technically or cost wise. Um, is is kind of beyond uh, the scope of, of my understanding, and that's definitely one of the main things that I need to be doing is is gathering expert knowledge as as I go about this process. But but yeah, honestly, I I will use whatever means necessary, and and I think the fact that it's you know hopefully two to four decades in the future means that a lot of these um, questions will hopefully be taking advantage of the best technology at that time, which we may not even know what it is at at this point, especially with um, how well things have been progressing with uh, this technology, but. Suffice to say, the reason why I was able to take this dream seriously is because uh, my friend in the industry was able to confirm for me that the technology does exist yeah. to do what, what I want right now with or without an ion drive or without a light sail. Like, uh, you know, the, the, we have definitely gotten things out of our solar system, sure. so uh, we've shown we can do it. So I just want to be thing number six. 
to leave the solar system. Is it your hope, Graham, that maybe some at some future point a million years down the road, some aliens are going to be out there in space and go, hey, get a load of this? Absolutely. That uh, is definitely one of the uh, more far, far-fetched but amusing uh, aspects of this possibility is that, you know, if I, if I did succeed, we are getting a, 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 an example of our species outside of our solar system. And yeah, so hopefully, potentially, some future civilization, some future species could come across us and, and yeah, have their, have their alien minds blown, I would hope. But the five things that we've sent outside the solar system thus far are obviously testament to who and what we are. But um, I just think like going that extra step and including an actual copy of the species that made the thing that has gotten that far is, is, is the necessary next step. Yeah, it beats the heart of a gold record. <laughs> exactly. Right. That does raise a lot of interesting questions about like what would the next gold record be? Like what would what would today's scientists and um, you know linguists and lexicographers put onto a gold record and or make a gold record out of me? Well, yeah, I guess as a musician, you must have given quite a bit of thought to this 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 musical idea. This entire thing is, is just a ploy to get my music to the farthest reaches <laughs> of the galaxy. <laughs> My understanding is you're already out there because you've appeared on Sesame Street a couple times in the past. I guess the electronics of that are probably spewing out to the rest of the galaxy by now. It's true. I, I, I was lucky enough to be on Sesame Street. It was a fantastic uh, opportunity and, and, and a lifelong dream to do uh, music videos for the number four and the letter M. <laughs> but that's actually, actually another interesting point, right? I mean, maybe you know about this, uh, Douglas. Uh, my understanding is that so all the radio waves that were broadcast um, when, when we would have uh, you know, open radio across the airwaves, um, have gone out into the universe to potentially yeah. be uh, detected. And of course, there was a, that corny, uh, I think it was a Steven Spielberg movie about that, where some, some alien had learned all about our culture just based on radio waves. But well, we're counting on the fact that Radio Parallax has streamed out past Alpha Centauri, it's gone past Barnard Star, Procyon. We figure it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's at least you know, 16 light years out there by now. Right. So being on KDVS, like you guys have a, have a, a track record out there, but, but at a certain point, as radio has moved to the internet, like that phenomenon is slowing down and actually coming to an end, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like, well, that's sad to think about, but I guess you're right. That, thank, God, thank God we're still being heard on KDVS and KZFR terrestrially and, and extraterrestrially. <laughs> right. Hopefully, this 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 very recording will be the linchpin to my entire plan. I'm sure. Right. This is this is our advance notice to the universe that you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, final question, Graham, for you. Why are you doing this? <laughs> I definitely know that that is the question at the front of of most everyone's minds, and I don't do anything without five or six good reasons. So I definitely have fifty or sixty for this, and I, and I won't go into to all those because it would take too long, but. You know, the first question is just why not? Like, we all have to <laughs> die. I might as well do something fun and interesting with my corpse. I only have the one of them, and I only all have right. the one time that I'm going to die. And then, but also, you know, in, in addition to just loving space travel, loving science, and, and thinking it's, a, it's an interesting technical challenge, but also at, at the end of the day, like I said you know, earlier, I just think that our species um, is obviously facing some rocky times, and, and, and you know, if we, if we don't figure out a way to get ourselves off of our planet, and sooner or later, I mean, you know, sooner or later the sun will burn us up if we don't actually get out of the solar system. So, like, we're going to have to find a way out of here, out of our local area, and, and I think that uh, getting one of us outside of this immediate zone um, to be 
hopefully, if not discovered, at least to have put a mark on the rest of the universe is, is uh, an important way of, of uh, honoring our species and what we're all about, which is uh, curiosity, rationality, the scientific mind, and, and I just love all those things, and I think that this would be a great homage to that uh, very human nature. Well, Graham Arthur McKenzie, we wish you well in this quest of yours. And uh, I guess in, in, as regards the why do it question, we throw out what Mallory said when they asked him why, why climb Everest. He responded, because it's there. Because it's there, absolutely. Graham, thanks for speaking with us. And we'll probably, I imagine, follow this story as it, it evolves uh, in our local media. I hope so. Thank you so much, Douglas. Another story from space. This one's a little bit closer to home. It involves uh, the Earth and the Sun. Here's the story. Back in 1972, on August 2nd to be specific, a giant sunspot, which was labeled MR11976, began to explode. It just so happens that when it did so, it was smack in the center of the Sun, meaning it was pointed right at us, planet Earth. For the next two days, it unleashed a series of X-class solar flares, which caused deep radio blackouts here on Earth, punished solar panels wherever they were found, at that time mostly on board satellites orbiting the Earth. Uh, one cloud of plasma, CME, coronal mass injection, came across the Earth-Sun divide in 14.6 hours. If you do the math on that, that means it came at us at about 6.3 million miles an hour and that record apparently still stands to this day at least in terms of ones we measured the resulting geomagnetic storms and i wish i could remember this back from 1972 sparked auroras so bright they cast shadows in countries as far south as britain well no wonder i didn't see it britain if you slid great britain over the north american continent london would be at like edmonton alberta there's your geography factoid for the day but back to the solar flare. This 1972 coronal mass injection is legendary at NASA because luckily it occurred between the Apollo missions. The crew of Apollo 16 had returned to Earth by April and the crew of Apollo 17 was preparing for a moon landing in December. If the timing had been different, astronauts would have been sickened by radiation and required an emergency return home for medical attention. Ouch. Yeah, that could have been more like, Houston, we got a big-ass problem. But um, this story actually is much stranger than all of this. The Navy has looked back at this event. According to a research paper that's just been accepted for publication in the journal Space Weather, declassified archives from the U.S. Navy reveals an extraordinary explosion in the sea lanes near Vietnam on this date. Aircraft reported two dozen explosions in the mines that were near Han La. These occurred over a 30-second time span. This is a part of the quarantine process for uh, 
isolating North Vietnam, I presume, the Navy concluded that the explosions had been caused by the magnetic perturbations of this solar storm. This is actually a really big deal. Looking at this, the Navy has now concluded that the solar storm blew off 4,000 magnetically sensitive mines. Evidently, this prompted the U.S. Navy to fast-track the replacement of magnetic-influenced mines with mines that also required seismic or acoustic triggers during periods of high solar activity. Anyway, pretty amazing that an August 1972 solar storm affected Earth in ways that are just now being fully understood this, you know, half century later. We've talked about this in the, on the program before. A Carrington event, a solar explosion, the sending of charged particles toward the Earth, and how this is, is going to disrupt the electronic grid we have here on our home planet. And if we're not fully prepared for it, and at this point in time we definitely are not fully prepared for it, there is going to be hell to pay. Let's hope it does not happen in the near future. And you know, we do like our electricity, don't we? And we've become quite dependent upon it. And we do need to keep this in mind in the wake of these catastrophic fires which have swept across northern and southern California. The one that started out east of Paradise has now destroyed more homes than, and I guess structures than any other fire in California history. It's by no means the biggest fire, but it appears to be probably the most destructive. As in the case of last year's fires, there's some evidence that PG&E, or one of its power poles getting knocked over, expressed sparks and, and started this thing. And this is very unfortunate. PG&E took a lot of heat for that last year. But the truth is, in high wind conditions, um, this is hard to avoid. I know you've got to construct your towers adequately so they're not tipping over willy-nilly. And we presume PG&E is doing that. Nevertheless, accidents will happen. Uh, I just think we should cut PG&E a little bit of slack here. Like I said, we all like our electricity, don't we? When they said this year, you know, we may have to cut you guys off in certain weather conditions, you know, so that you don't tip a, a live tower over and there's not this shower of sparks, etc. People weren't too happy about that. But, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, if we're going to demand that PG&E builds towers that can withstand any kind of conditions, well, we're going to have to be prepared to pay a little bit more for our juice. Does that sound fair? Boy, and speaking of those fires, I'm looking at a picture that's in the East Bay Times, and it shows a mass of melted aluminum, I guess under an automobile block? I don't know. I looked this up because when I was in high school, I decided to melt down various elements, and at one point we managed to find some aluminum that we were able to melt down. That requires 1,200 degrees of heat. 1,200 degrees. And that's evidently what those fires achieved and more. Holy mackerel. And speaking of fires, as we are, there's an analysis that appeared in New Scientist magazine about how we really should stop burning wood. You know, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this. I have a couple of fireplaces. You know, it's nice on a wintry, rainy night to be nestled by the fire, isn't it? But uh, it is polluting. There's, there's no two ways about it. The magazine says, and I'm going to have to take them at their word on this, that having a neighbor with a wood burner, that's not the same as, you know, uh, burning in your fireplace. If you are heating your house with a wood-burning stove, as it so happens, my neighbor does, it turns out that's like having eight trucks idling in your street all night, which doesn't sound good. 
I do note, luckily in my case, prevailing winds are blowing the smoke away from my house most of the time. So I guess I'm going to leave it up to other neighbors to to have a chat with uh, the neighbor in question. And from spaceweather.com, if you're concerned about another coronal mass injection and a Carrington event uh, blasting across Earth, you don't have to worry right now. There are no sunspots on our sun. None. And there have not been for the past almost four weeks. Now, we reported here on this program back in 08 and 09, the sun really, really went blank at that point and spent most of its time in both of those years without any, any sunspots, which I guess is good for radio communications, etc. Anyway, it's a pretty esoteric subject, sunspots. You know, if you're listening to the radio and they're talking about sunspots, you're listening to Radio Parallax. And no, even though Art Bell has passed along, we're not... We're not planning on taking up the slack for him. But sunspots, uh, well, they, they, might, they might save our ass in the short term, or at least not having sunspots, because, as we talked about, I don't know, a year or two ago on the show, back in the 1600s, there were decades. We went decades without sunspots. Since we go through a solar cycle of 11 years where they come, they go, they come, they go, not having them for a long period of time was a little bit weird. And this apparently also coincides with a cooling that took place in the Northern Hemisphere. If you go look back at paintings taken in Holland or made in Holland at that time, they will show people skating across canals in in, in Amsterdam and other places that never freeze now. So... um, If we're going to get a little bit of global cooling, right now would be a good time. So here at Radio Paralyze, we were rooting. We were rooting for for continuation of no sunspots, and we think you should too. All right, we've only got a few minutes left in this segment. I would like to talk more about Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, but no time today. And of course, I'm still reading it. We promised a bit of follow-up on the election uh, on last week's show, but it looks like we're going to have a very uh, limited fulfillment of that promise. About the only thing I want to say about it is, you know, our democracy is a very flawed thing, sad to note. Looking back at the contests for state offices here in California, you have to ask, what do you really know, dear listener, about the state controller, about the superintendent of public instruction, about the insurance commissioner? Yes, we were given a choice, and yes, we voted on one of the two people or three that was on the ballot. But did you really feel informed about the state insurance commissioner? I don't know. Enough said. When it comes to commentary on on politics, few are better, we would say, than Andy Borowitz. And to quote from last week's Borowitz report, under the headline, Trump appoints El Chapo to head the DEA, (laughs) Borowitz went on, Trump's appointment of the former drug lord surprised many in Washington, in no small part because acrimony between the two allegedly prompted El Chapo back in 2015 to put a $100 million bounty on Trump's head. But appearing on CNN, Trump surrogate Kellyanne Conway said that the selection of El Chapo should surprise no one. Mr. Trump has always said he would surround himself with the best people, she said. He knows the appointment of the former drug kingpin is far from a done deal, however, as associates of El Chapo report that he's concerned that being a member of the Trump administration could be bad for his brand.
Let's take a break at this point. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to learn a little bit about America's Secret Service with author Vince Palomara. Stick around. <laughs> 